Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Common Ground Outdoor Adventures, providing outdoor recreational opportunities for youth and adults with disabilities, hosting the 2017 Cache Valley Century Ride Saturday, August 26th, starting in Richmond, Utah. Details available at cachevalleycentury.com. Before we jump into uh, today's topic, likes versus life, a, a comment from yesterday's program. We uh, repeated a program uh, from May of last year with uh, Wayne Pacelli, who is the uh, national uh, CEO of the Humane Society. And uh, this is uh, Steve's response, Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona. Steve, uh, the t- headline is, my the dogs are my anchors, he says. Uh, Steve says, I'm retired and divorced, and someday I'm going to leave the UPR listening area and move either to the East Coast or to France. That sounds interesting. I never knew that about Steve. But uh, that day won't come soon because I have been adopting rescue dogs for years and currently have six living with me, down from seven. One died last month. Oh, that's too bad. We all live happily together on a few fences in acres and I won't be moving on so long as the last one survives. UPR and the dogs are my constant companions. Thanks for that Steve. Thanks for listening and thanks for uh, for sharing. A new study out from the company Vital Smarts uh, shows that 58% of respondents say posting that perfect picture has prevented them from enjoying life experiences and has sometimes even caused them to behave in bizarre or immoral ways. One in four have even allowed their smartphone to distract during intimate moments. What's more, the online survey revealed that uh, this obsession with social media interactions and trophy hunting isn't just distracting, it's dictating lives. Nearly three out of four people admit to being rude or disconnected from others because they're more focused on their phone than on the other person. 91% have seen a tourist miss enjoyment in the moment uh, trying to get it on social media. Many acknowledge doing the same thing themselves. 79% have seen a parent undermine their own experience in a child's life in an effort to capture the perfect uh, post. And uh, the uh, study uh, goes on from there. We'll talk about it today with uh, one of the uh, the authors of the study, uh, David Maxfield, from the company Vital Smarts. David Maxfield uh, joins us uh, on the phone. Welcome to the program. Hi, welcome, Tom. Thank uh, you. Thank, thanks for being with us. And we have in studio with us uh, Assistant Professor of English, uh, head, heads the Folklore Department here at uh, USU, Lynn McNeil rejoins us. Hi, Tom. Thank you. So, David Maxfield, uh, tell us, first of all, uh, Vital Smarts, what's, what's the company? Uh, we're a research-based consulting firm that, that works mostly with large organizations, helping them improve their performance by improving skills of their people, interpersonal skills, communication skills, conflict skills, that kind of thing. Hmm. What was the impetus behind the study? Why did you want to do the study? Well, it was very personal. <laughs> I, we, my wife and I had a bunch of nieces and nephews out, and they were playing in the surf in Southern California, learning how to boogie board and learning how to surf. And I was out there trying to get the perfect pictures <laughs> so that I could post it to our Facebook page. And at some point, my wife came to me and said, you know, you should put your camera away. Come out and have some fun with the rest of us. And it was kind of like, you know, there are a lot of times when I think people forget to have fun with the rest of them because they're so busy trying to increase their likes or trying to increase the number of friends they've got. They've quantified relationships and lost some of the quality. Now you're uh, you're not necessarily anti-technology, right? You're just uh, warning oh, us uh, no, not some at misuses. All. I'm, okay. I'm, I, if I were to say you know pros versus cons, I see more pros than cons. I think that that society um, 
adopts a new invention over time, and gradually norms get established, and we integrate it into to, to keeping the benefits and minimizing the costs. And we're not very far along that track yet, I think, with a lot of social media. Mm. There's, I, I want to share a few of the, uh, you took anecdotes out of the what respondents gave you um, alongside the statistics. One that really struck me was the mother of a toddler, right, who uh, disciplined the toddler. He or she threw a tantrum. She hadn't captured it, though, on on video, so she reprovoked the toddler. Uh, then felt bad. And disciplined them all over again. Yeah. <laughs> Just so they could share. Right. <laughs> Which, you know, we'd all say, and the mother in the case thought that was bad. She felt bad about it. But it's kind of typical of what a lot of us are doing these days. Yeah, though I think it tends to be more subtle. It's, I mean, I guess the example I'd give would say, say you wake up in the morning and you're planning on taking a hike up to, to see a sunrise, and, and you get to the top of the mountain, it's, you've enjoyed your trip, it's great. You take a picture and you share it on social media. Contrast that who you're trying to get your blog to get more or your Facebook page to get more friends and more likes, and you realize that some of your friends are, are, are liking pictures related to fitness, so you decide, what's a fitness challenge I could do that could generate a bunch of likes? Maybe I'll climb that mountain and take a bunch of photos along the way. My argument is that your experience of hiking up the mountain is very, very different when your goal is not to experience the hike, but rather to use it instrumentally to get more friends and likes to your page. Hmm. I'll turn to Lynn McNeil. What, uh, that's an interesting point, uh, that our very experiences perhaps are, are changing. Absolutely. How could they not be? We are surrounded by this is the technology that not only lets us capture and record and preserve the world around us, but this is the technology through which we communicate with other people. So it's it's we have this one-way sense that we are broadcasting our lives out to other people, but this is also a major way in which we hear back from them. My husband recently attempted to go off of social media, take a break from it, and discovered that that was where he was getting most invitations to in-person social outings was through these applications, and it wasn't quite so easy to detach after all. So yeah, this is this is a big, big thing in our lives. For me, the question really comes down to what direction the causation is going with this stuff. I think it's absolutely right that that we have yet to really develop a strong sense of societal norms about any of this. This technology is still surprisingly new when it comes to the Internet. We're looking at the mid-1990s for when that really became a part of most people's lives. So it's perhaps unfair of us to expect ourselves to have developed a bunch of norms at this point. And I think we still have to face that question of whether engaging with social media is causing us to withdraw or miss out, or whether the people who are inclined perhaps to withdraw are the ones who are engaging so deeply in social media. So I think we have that that chicken and egg scenario of causation. Is it that engaging in social media makes me less happy or is it that I am less happy and therefore I am turning more and more to social media? Mm. David Maxfield, I think your your study shows at least correlation, right? I don't think you'd claim causation. What would you say about that chicken and egg right. problem? Well, I agree. I agree with a lot of what Lynn is saying. And I, and I guess I would say that it's probably not as simple as either or. Um, it's probably that in, in some cases, it's it's your 
sense of isolation or depression is driving you to social media. And in other cases, it's an aspect of social media, like, like the way we tend to show our best selves. And so when we look at others' Facebook pages, we feel a bit of jealousy sometimes. That Sometimes the causation goes that way, to where we end up finishing our social media session feeling a little down. So it, the causation can go both directions, um, and you hope it doesn't get caught in a vicious cycle where you feel down, so you go to social media, and that ends up making you feel even more down. Mm-hmm. And you hope you want a more positive cycle, more like what Lynn's describing her husband experiences, where you go to social media, you, you expand your social network, and you augment that, and, and it turns into a face-to-face kind of experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's one of the the, the anecdotes from the uh, from the survey. By the way, the survey was conducted by Vital Smarts. We have with us David Maxfield from Vital Smarts. We also have with us uh, Lynn McNeil from uh, USU English Department, uh, heads up the folklore department uh, or program here at USU. This is uh, somebody said. My friend is depressed and unhappy with his living situation, but posts on Twitter and Facebook all these amazing photos and status updates. People say he has such an amazing life, but I know he doesn't feel that way at all. And that's, you know, we know that exists. And then there can be pressure, right, keeping up with the Joneses online when the Joneses may not have that all that great a life in real life. We start to see a little bit of, of self-correction or self-policing about that, too, online. There's a great Internet meme that people get to create their own visions of that's basically a, a two-sided image. One says me on Facebook, one says me in real life. And one is, of course, a picture of them looking like they're having a fabulous time at an amazing party. And the next picture is them, you know, home alone on the couch watching maybe a video of other people having a really great time. And it it's fun to see people negotiate that exact issue and problem using the medium that is the hub of that issue and problem, finding ways to acknowledge my real life does not remotely match this life that mm-hmm. I'm putting out there. And there's some there's some great parody social media accounts as well, a lot of Instagram accounts where people are going over the top, making their lives look absolutely wonderful, you know, that casually disheveled, rumpled, gorgeous bedhead look mm. and, and things like that. And I think what I hope is that that points to us as a as a society moving towards an understanding of this, that mm. that what we see in in social media is not real life, that we don't need to feel that we need to compare our actual daily experiences to the mediated presented experiences of other people. Of course, that doesn't change the fact that we all suffer from FOMO, fear of missing out Mm -hmm. all the time because of social media, which is, I think, detrimental in a lot of cases. I want to talk about FOMO. I want to follow up first with Lynn McNeil. Uh, You know, some of these things are are just problems, problems, phenomena that we've had always, and that now they just move into the realm of social media. And I'm thinking about this, uh, you know, this presenting the perfect face. And you go back to the the old Christmas newsletters where everything perfect happened to the family. And you know that's not the real That's an excellent face of, you know. example of a genre that, that happens offline but that does a lot of that same stuff. You're absolutely right. And I think there, too, we sometimes see – you know, one a family who's sick of it will send out a Christmas letter that's honest that says, you know, the kids got C's this year and Jim had surgery and we're all financially strapped, but we're doing our best. Um, but you're right. A lot of this stuff has offline precedent. And I think that that for me, as someone who studies digital culture, the importance of remembering that is in where we look 
to grow beyond these issues. And if we look at these issues being caused by social media or by technology, then we're overlooking the fact that we've had these issues all along, issues of using um, a particular device or, or object in our presence to be rude or to ignore people or reasons to provoke our children or reasons to disrupt intimate moments. People have found ways to do this long before they had social media. Social media certainly is giving us all sorts of new ways to be really, really rude to each other, which is disappointing. But remembering that we would be able to do this even without this technology, I think, is part of how we are going to grow out of these behaviors. Mm. David Maxwell, I wonder if, what you would say about this. This, this is, you know, we've we've had some of this phenomenon, uh, phenomena before. Uh, oh, yes. But now we have all this new technology, which can be good. We can connect with each other, but we can also prevent connections with each other. Yeah, and you know, I think that what Lynn says about about the fun memes that can that make fun of the problem that that that's part of how we do sort of acknowledge the mistakes that we make ourselves, and it's also how we start to establish norms. Ridicule is a wonderful way to establish norms, right? But I want to focus on some of the issues that maybe are new because of the technology. And one of them would be quantification. And it's a quantification of our behavior. And it it ranges from, you know, having a Fitbit that measures our steps instead of just experiencing a walk. It's the number of friends we have, the number of likes we get, the number of comments, the number of shares. So it's quantity, it's the quantification. A second that we've talked about is the narrowing of the bandwidth where um, instead of getting rich and detailed feedback, right, we're getting a very limited kind of expression, and it's carefully crafted, right? So it's a biased kind of expression. And, and yes, we, we know we're doing it, and yet our, our data stream determines our mental agenda and our mental hierarchy. So narrow bandwidth is a problem. Another issue, and again, I don't necessarily say these are problems, but they're issues that are new and novel, would be the the degree of instant gratification and immediate feedback and particular kinds of feedback that we get. Um, Whether it's, you know, the minute I want a tune, I get it from iTunes. The minute I want a product, I get it from Amazon Prime. Um, Instant access to a movie at Netflix. Um, I don't have to go to the library because I have Google search, right? Um, These are all issues that combine together to change our experience in a fairly profound way. And that's why it's going to take us a while to figure out how to, how to take and keep the best of it and, and manage the rest. Mm. Where do you think we are, David Maxfield, with, with norms? I mean, there, there are some things, I think, that are frowned upon, others that perhaps some wish were frowned yeah. upon, but, but, but aren't yeah. yet uh, being you know, uh, moved, moved out. We, we did a fun study a year ago where we asked people, essentially, you know, is it okay to do this? Is it okay to do that? In some areas, there's some pretty clear norms. For instance, um, you're not supposed to take pictures at a funeral. Uh, you're not supposed to talk on a cell phone during church. But it's something like talking on a cell phone while you're checking out of the grocery store. There we had perfectly half of the people said that was not acceptable, and half of the people said, why not? Of course it's acceptable. So I think you can go from area to area. I mean, obviously, the more um, personal, the the more um, the, the more risky the situation, the less likely you, or the less appropriate it is to bring in some of these social 
issues, social media kinds of, or, or, or technological um, separators. Um, but, you know, I, I think we're, we're traveling along that norm. Uh, Lou McNeil, how how does that uh, happen? I, I'm, I assume with any new technology, any new uh, thing that we all use, the you know the, the norms come along, but it takes a while. Yeah, and if we look back at past technology, we can see that it's taken a while. And some things we haven't even come to consensus on. Is it rude to have a TV on while eating family dinner? That's a, a question that we would probably still get different answers from different people on today. Um, and... It's something that takes time, and it's something also that that develops along with the technology. There's sort of two two ways of looking at it. Um, there's a wonderful book out there by new media scholar Nancy Bame called Personal Connections in the Digital Age, and she talks about these different perspectives on the direction of influence, and one is technological determinism, which basically says we are at the mercy of technology. Technology swoops in, and we simply cope or adapt or become what the technology is making us. And the other perspective, of course, is social shaping, which is that we're the ones in charge. We designed the technology in the first place, and the technology is there to meet a need that we had already. And, of course, reality lies somewhere in between these two things. So, for example, we got cell phones that had short message services on them, and you could painstakingly punch out a you know, alpha numeric message to someone using number keys. So it was just a matter of time before we had full keyboards on our cell phones. And then texting grew and developed, and suddenly we had a need to be able to express our emotions better. What do we have at our disposal? We have a keyboard. We start using punctuation to make various faces that indicate various emotions, happiness, sadness, things like this. Um, So then where does the technology go next? It gives us emojis, little cartoon versions of these things. So we can see that that this is a the landscape is always shifting. So we're developing our norms, but the technology is changing so quickly that it's hard to keep up. And that's always been the case, but everything with the internet gets faster and exponentially bigger. And it just, we're, we're sort of trailing along in the wake, doing our, our best. I, I ask my students all the time, um, what is inappropriate to find out through social media? And, it, if, uh, you know, as David was saying, the extreme examples are the most straightforward. You don't want to find out that someone very, very close to you has a terrible, terrible illness or is getting married or is having a baby through social media. It kind of casts you as one of the, the many masses. But there's a lot more in between things that it's harder to say with. To whom is it inappropriate to send a winky face emoticon? Is that flirtatious? Is it jocular? How do you know what the person receiving it thinks? Though, of course, that's a situation that always existed offline before. There have been a lot of misinterpreted real-life winks in mm-hmm. the world. Let's take a break. When we come back more with David Maxfield from Vital Smarts, uh, the, the company did a recent study, very interesting, um, on uh, use of social media and how, in some cases at least, that's distancing us from, uh, fr- from experiencing real life. Three out of four people admit to being rude or disconnected from others because they're more focused on their phone than the other person. 91% this study have seen a tourist misenjoyment in the moment while trying to get it on social media. 
And uh, once when we come back, I want to talk about uh, danger. Some people are putting themselves in danger to to, to capture the the moment. Uh, we'll talk about uh, social media trophy hunters, and we'll talk about that distancing effect uh, as well. Um, uh, when we come back with David Maxfield and Lynn McNeil, assistant professor of English at Utah State University. More following this. Thanks for joining us for Access U Time. Tom Williams. We're talking about social media and real life. The headline uh, on this uh, study in the Desert News is "Likes versus Life." A new study is out from Vital Smarts. That's a, a leadership uh, company, and we have with us David Maxfield from Vital Smarts, one of the authors of this study. We also have with us assistant professor of English uh, of uh, folklore, English slash folklore, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Lynn McNeil is uh, with us in the studio. And uh, you can join us uh, to email upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your story. Uh, or 800-826-1495. You can call us, 800-826-1495. David Maxwell, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit more about this distancing effect that sometimes happens. I'll, I'll read this anecdote from the study. Uh, Trying to capture and post my daughter's dance event, I completely missed it. She asked me, did you see me? I really didn't. It was awful, she says. And you've, you told us about what your wife said, right? You were, you were capturing your, uh, your nephews at the beach and uh, trying to be helpful, right? Helpful uncle. But your wife said, hey, you'd enjoy this more if you put the camera down. Yeah, and, and there's no reason that it has to be either or, right? I mean, I think one of the suggestions that we give people is go ahead and take the picture, then put the camera away and go have fun, <laughs> right? It's sometimes the need to get the, the like or get the posting, or share the information. It's a legitimate desire. There's nothing wrong with that desire. I, I encourage it. It's just don't let it suck up your entire time. Hmm. Uh, I, I suppose uh, some people might say, well, i got to get the perfect shot, right? i gotta get the, I got I to get the perfect moment. <laughs> the selfie with tigers. Yeah. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I think it's a, the city, New York City actually, passed a, a resolution making it illegal to have a selfie with tigers because mm. people were going to the zoo, climbing over the barrier, getting close to the bars where the tiger is so they could get a selfie with a tiger. This is not smart. I mean, yeah, you want to like. Yeah, you'd love to have that perfect picture. But what's it worth? And in, in your study, 14% say they've risked their own safety to try to get a good uh, posting. Yeah, I'm, I have, we have a, a vacation home that's near some railroad tracks. Go figure, right? People, they have a problem with people standing by the railroad tracks trying to get a selfie with an oncoming train. Wow, that's yeah. <laughs> and this you, you, you could you could think this is maybe all teenagers, but it probably isn't. No, I can tell you, I've seen people. <laughs> yeah, and that's a really good example of a situation that probably wouldn't exist without the technology. You simply wouldn't have enough of an audience without the ability to post it to be willing to take that risk. It's the breadth of the audience ups the stakes on what you want to get a picture of. It's There's a real economy of attention going on here. The more extreme your content, the better the chances are that you're going to reach a bigger audience or get more likes and, or more interest. And yeah. 
maybe they'll win the Darwin Awards and, and it'll be self-correcting. Mm-hmm. There you yeah. go. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and then the, the fact they won the Darwin Award will get posted, right? But, uh, but the, They'll but live on. Their fame will live right, on. Right. But, but, even if they don't. Even if they don't, yeah. Um, that's uh, far too high a price. Um, David Maxwell, I'll start again with you on this one. Uh, that, that disconnect, you know, we'd, we've all seen the... You know, scenes in movies or, you know, it's kind of the parodies of the dance recital. And the parents are watching in a way, but they're watching through the screen with, that they're recording this with. And that, so th- there's there's a distancing there. It's, it's I don't know, a lot of us would say it's not really, yeah. not really experiencing the recital. Well, and sometimes it's changing the experience itself. So one of the anecdotes was a, a, a 12-year-old nephew was having a great time tearing off wrapping paper to play with each of his new toy cars. His parents made him move to the next one, quote, so we can post it for the family. <laughs> My nephew got so frustrated he left the room crying, and his parents blamed each other for his difficult behavior. <laughs> <laughs> so trying to make your kids open the, the Christmas presents or birthday presents in the perfect way to get the perfect picture uh, makes it so the kid doesn't enjoy getting his presents. Mm. Now, what about uh, consumption? I'll, I'll go to you first, uh, Lynn McNeil, on this one. Here's another anecdote from the study from Vital Smarts. Um, this is uh, this really touched me, um, struck me. While on maternity leave, this woman says, I used my smartphone to look at Facebook while nursing my newborn son. I wish I'd have paid more attention to him during these moments because I know he was looking at me while I was looking at my phone. Yeah, this is this is an interesting phenomenon that we tend to beat ourselves up, beat ourselves up for our use of social media. And it goes, there are a lot of different ways to look at this. I think that, yes, absolutely, we can put our phones down and we can engage more deeply in what we're doing. Though, I think it's also even just in a being nice to ourselves sort of way, important to remember that pre-cell phones, I'm sure there were a lot of moms who, while nursing their babies, sharing this wonderful moment with their brand new life that they just brought into the world, were reading a newspaper or People magazine or zoning out on daytime television because you're exhausted when you're a new mom and you Mm -hmm. want a break. And I think that that's also legitimate. I think that in a way, a lot of that idealized life that we see on social media and motherhood is not immune to that. The world of mommy blogs is a competitive, vicious place. Mm. There, I had a student once write a virtual ethnography of um, breastfeeding versus bottle feeding web forums, and I have almost never seen such vicious personal attacks mm. as you see in this environment of new mothers, which is very heartbreaking. But we tend to to get this impression through the social media that different aspects of life should look different ways. New motherhood should look like this. New marriage should look like this. Childhood should look like this. Retirement should look like this. Education should look like this. And in reality, one, it doesn't. And two, it doesn't need to necessarily. And the issues are less with the things around us and more with us getting back in touch with what we actually want to be doing. I think beating yourself up for not gazing into your baby's eyes 24-7 is not necessary. Mm. Neither is being on your phone 24-7. There's a there's a happy medium in there somewhere. And picking apart, not where the blame lies, that's even maybe too harsh a way to put it, but, but 
who's in charge of what is is really key when and I think it's I think it's too easy and out to always blame the technology because it lets us off the hook for the choices that we're making that we could very easily be making with non-technological things as well. Mm-hmm. David Maxfield, what, what would you say about the balance? Because, you know, there, there's a lot of good things we can do with social media. Sometimes there's stress that accompanies it, and maybe it is good to take a time out. I don't know, sometimes. Oh, well, I, I, I love social media, and I use social media, and I'm not walking away from social media. So that's sort of where I stand on the balance. I'm just trying to, to um, highlight that there are some challenges. And some of these challenges, I think, as Lynn is saying, precede social media. I mean, I think that, and yet they, they, they get, they can become a bigger problem because of social media. Let me use the example of, I'll, I'll take the example of the, the newborn child and nursing the child as just an example and say, you know, this is, this is a time when, when, when you want to deepen a relationship, right? And you're creating this, this precious relationship and we think of relationships as familial relationships, as close friends, friends we see, friends we have empathy for, we're attached to. It, there, there are many threads that unite us. And I want to contrast that sort of relationship to the connection of what we sometimes call friends, where it's a Facebook friend, but it's perhaps a friend we wouldn't recognize if we ever saw them. Uh, we know very, very little about them. We may even say we don't know them, right? And so it's, it's the difference between having friends and having relationships and that, that it would be a mistake to quantify friendship by saying, oh, I've got a thousand friends. It, at the expense of, of deepening relationships. And again, I want to go back to the example Lynn gave at the very outset, which is her husband uses social media to create and deepen relationships. And so there's that positive use of social media that, that, that I'm going for, and I'm trying to guard against that negative use of quantification over quality. Yeah, there's a, there's a strong emphasis in, in social media on things being visible that weren't visible before that, that I think lends to itself to that quantification idea. We've always had weak ties in our social networks. There have always been people who we knew of but didn't actually know in in our lives. You know, you sit down with a friend and they say, oh, do you know Judy? And you piece together, you know, through eight different connections through where you work or where you live about how you know this person. And, oh, yeah, I actually know many things about her and know her well. Um, but I would never count her among my friends because until this moment I wasn't really aware of knowing her. Suddenly on Facebook, a tie that week is numbered among your friends. So random people you went to fourth grade with who you would not recognize if you passed them on the street now have always been available in sort of this wide, shallow pool of weak tie acquaintances. And they could always at any moment be called into a closer connection or a better relationship. But now we can see them. And I think that ties into that FOMO idea, fear of missing out. People have always been doing things that didn't involve us socially since we've been alive, you know, not everyone can be invited to everything. Only now we see pictures of it. We even get live updates of it. If all of our friends are hanging out somewhere without us, we are seeing a minute by minute playbook mm. of that social event playing out on social media, really driving home that we're not there. Now, that, of course, happened before it was just invisible. So what we're seeing is a lot of visibility 
that's building up around things that we didn't used to see. We did not see everyone else's lives. We didn't see whether idealized or not what motherhood or marriage or any other phase of life looked like in quite the same way that we do now. And I think it's a good point that that leads to this quantification. Right. Yeah. And I think also yeah. the combination, the quantification, the instant gratification and the fear of missing out can create kind of an addictive cycle where the fear of missing out causes you to check your Facebook or check your social media very often. Um, and the quantification means you've got a win or a loss, right, very immediately. And, you, and that instant gratification serves as a reinforcer. And so you get some people who, you know, they act like super users or almost like addicts, or we call them trophy hunters who are out there trying to get the, the, the perfect picture and the, the massive number of likes. Yeah. Uh, I want to um, let's take a break. When we, when we come back, I want to, without getting too political, I want to talk about the president, uh, who's a, a masterful user of Twitter, um, and an avid, some would say, maybe addicted consumer of cable news, and the interesting ways that the media, you could say, drives him, and then he cycles that through social media, and it's 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 a very interesting. Very interesting phenomenon. I want to talk a bit about that. And um, this uh, phenomenon of oversharenting. I, I hadn't uh, come across that uh, term. And I, would, I want to talk about some uh, some advice. Um, David Maxfield uh, gives some advice here. I'm sure Lynn McNeil has some as well on how we can uh, get a better balance. More following this break. Thanks for joining us. We reached our last segment on this topic of uh, social media and uh, likes versus life. There's a new study out, fascinating study from Vital Smarts, and we have with us uh, David Maxfield from Vital Smarts. We also have with us uh, USU Assistant Professor of uh, English and Folklore, um, Lynn McNeil. You can join this conversation if you'd like at 800-826-1495, or uh, you can join us to email upraccess at gmail.com. So I want to talk, you know, without uh, derailing this discussion too much into politics, uh, talk about uh, President Trump, who uh, is fascinating in kind of the classic sense of that word. You, you can't look away. Um, and he, uh, part of this is calculated. He, he was masterful use of this phenomenon. He, he, he was he's able to grab attention, get that free media by being outrageous, by being fascinating, by, by grabbing that attention. He's continued that, um, into his administration. Um, we have this phenomenon where he certainly drives the news. He has that power to do that as president, but also it seems like he's uh, avidly consuming uh, cable news, responding to that on Twitter almost immediately, and so it's a, it's an odd feedback uh, cycle. Um, and uh, in some ways emblematic of, of, of good and bad of, of, of today's media culture. I'll go to you first, Lynn McNeil. What would you say about this? things that we see happening here is that part of that development of norms that is still ongoing is affecting all of this. We aren't sure what to do with a president who uses an informal mode of communication like Twitter for so many important comments and, and declarations. Just this morning, I was listening to NPR before I came into the station today, and Trump had tweeted 
about um, his declaration that transgender people uh, would not serve in the armed forces anymore. And the news anchors on NPR were saying to each other, so is this policy? You know, what is a tweet politically? What is a tweet democratically? What is a, a tweet presidentially? These are all new arenas that we barely even know how seriously to take our own tweets or our friends' tweets about what they had for lunch or about whether they liked that person's outfit. And here we have, you know, the highest level of information coming through in what has largely, not entirely, but largely been a more informal medium that we're still trying to negotiate in terms of where it stands as as a form of communication. And it, it it's a very right now sort of issue that and, and it's that that sense that we don't quite know yet what to do, I think, infiltrates all of this as well. Mm. David Maxfield, I, I think we're not I'm not used to I'm used to a, maybe a campaign getting heated and uh, paying a lot of attention to it. I'm a political junkie. But then I'm used to things settling down and, and myself being able to take a break. <laughs> but it's not yeah. been the case. Uh, and some of this is purposeful. I think, you know, Trump has mastered that art of, of, of taking up the oxygen, uh, that attention oxygen. Yes, I think that's right. I think that um, Lynn put her finger on it in the sense that it's an, it's an informal channel and and are we getting formal stuff through this informal channel? I mean, obviously, what we're getting from Twitter, it's direct from the president. It's unmediated through any sort of um, campaign or or PR firm. It's verbatim. It's his own words. Um, the the phrase I heard one commentator talk about bef- during the election, before the 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 actual vote, was that. Um, that Trump supporters did not take him literally, but did take him seriously, <laughs> and that some of his uh, people opponent, uh, who are his opponents did not take him literally. I mean, did take him literally, but did not take him seriously. Now, with some of these sort of outrageous tweets, um, and the fact that he is president, should we take him both literally and seriously? Obviously, we have to take it seriously. Do we take it literally? Because if so... Some of those things um, not only change the, the norms of social media, but change the norms of what we mean by a president or presidential. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because this is this is you know in some cases straight up marketing. I, I uh, and you know Trump came clean. What uh, one incident during the campaign? Um, you remember when he was going around saying that President Obama was the founder of ISIS? And, of course, that's outrageous on the face of it. And so Hugh Hewitt, the conservative uh, media host, uh, said, okay, candidate Trump, I know what you mean. Uh, I I get the kernel of of truth that uh, that you're trying to, from Hewitt's point of view, that you're trying to do there. But on the face of it, okay, President Obama is not the founder of ISIS, literally. And, And candidate Trump said, okay, but that wouldn't capture the attention. And so I'm going to persist in saying President Obama is the founder of ISIS. So a very purposeful marketing strategy. And in an environment that is at least perceived to be very equalizing, this is this is our president using sometimes to say information for the first time that he's said it, a platform that is equally available to everyone. And of course, that's not literally true. There are plenty of people who don't have access to the internet or cell phones or Twitter. But for those who do, 
Twitter is free. Twitter is open for use. You can have a public account just like Donald Trump's. And so we see these discussions happening on a on a very broad, spread out scale involving a number of people who probably in the past would never have the opportunity to respond directly to the president's initial announcement of policy. Mm-hmm. And yet here it happens. So it's very muddy and very messy and very, very much right now. <laughs> David Maxfield, I wonder what you would say about the the, the impulse. Uh, the, the president's impulse seems to be, you know, uh, calculated. He he, it's political. Also, maybe a personal impulse. He wants attention. Many of the rest of us want that attention. And now we have platforms where we can where we can get that. I don't know whether we'd find it satisfying though or not to to get all that attention. Well, uh, it doesn't fall neatly into the category I was describing around quantity over quality. <laughs> Obviously, he wants quantity. He, he's he's very proud of the number of Twitter followers he has. He's very proud of his quote ratings. Um, he wants he wants the quantification that people respect, admire him, um, and that he's a success in all the quantitative measures. And so he's very. It's clear that that that's very important to him. Um, at the same time, I think you're right in that he's. Um, He's using an informal, uh, an informal messaging uh, channel where it is historically okay to be outrageous, and it's even uh, rewarded for being outrageous. But he's uh, governing in a in a in an environment where that's historically been taboo, uh, and so it's this interesting mix of norms. And to add to that, the marketing feature you're talking about, where it's that blur between fact and fiction. Um, is it fact, or is it um, what, in his words, he would call puffery, where puffery is somewhere between fact and fiction. Uh, it's clearly not fact, but it has a kernel of truth to it. Hmm. It's complicated. It, it is. It is, yeah. I want to just have both of you respond to this idea of norms as it relates to the, the president. Of course, the president is famously flouting some norms that we thought were settled. Uh, I suppose norms can go the other way. We're, we're discovering, perhaps. I don't know, Lynn McNeil. I think norms are in a constant state of flux. It's going faster, and and we're seeing all the different subtle nuances of it now in a way that we never have before. And as any sociologist will tell you, normlessness is distressing, not knowing what to expect, what's typical, what's considered bad form, what's considered good behavior, what's considered sportsmanlike, what's considered not. These are, are very basic sort of determinations that we find ourselves suddenly unable to make. And I do think that we will eventually come out on the other side of this. I think that we are in a period of change that we have not experienced before. We have had to shift our sense of what is normal innumerable times, obviously, throughout history, but even throughout recent history, just with technological development, globalization, the immediacy of travel, we all encounter people whose norms are far different from ours on a regular basis. But this is happening on an even smaller nuanced scale that we're just having these 
shifts and breaks and people are breaking our norms and aren't paying the price and perhaps are rewriting a new set of norms right then and there for how best to handle something. And we all just sort of have to stumble to keep up. So it's a it's a very weird time. And it's legitimate that it be distressing. And it's understandable that it tie into all these other ways that we're trying to figure out where we fit into all of this and maybe try extra hard to make ourselves fit or make ourselves look like we fit Mm -hmm. into this whole scenario. David Maxfield, I wonder, we, we, you know, we, one of the problems that we worry about is, is this uh, polarization, the division of the country. And I don't know, will we end up with one set of norms for one half the country and another set of norms for the other half the country? That's kind of violates the, the meaning, the definition of the word norms. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think we're going to see uh, multiple groups, probably not even two, probably many, many groups where where uh, with different sets of norms, and and perhaps we've always had that as well. We've had sort of you know upper class, lower class, you know informal, formal. I mean, we've had there are always overlapping. Uh, we live in multiple worlds, and we always have. And each world that we live in, each social environment, has its own set of norms. And, and some of us are more proficient than others at crossing those cultural uh, uh, divisions and knowing what the norms are. Now I think you're seeing people, you know, um, living in an echo chamber and in their bubble and having norms within that bubble and demonizing people who violate those norms. But in, a, in their own bubble, they're not violating norms at all. I, I agree mm-hmm. completely. And I think mm-hmm. that, I think that, that, ties into a lot of things that 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 we've been talking about here that question of visibility as a folklorist I would agree we absolutely have many overlapping sets of norms I have norms of what's expected of me as a sports fan and what's expected of me as a university professor and what's expected of me as a western american and and we exist in all of those and I utilize my understandings of those norms in different contexts adeptly and with ease as we all do that's a we all know to behave differently at work and at church and at home and at school and among our friends. And we do that very well. And that's a skill set that that humans have. Now, one of the things we're able to see is just how many other groups there are who aren't like us. And, you know, the idea of that echo chamber, I was reading an article written about urban legends and rumors in the 1970s. And the authors of that article were talking about the echo chamber. It was amazing. I couldn't believe it that it had been written that long ago when that's such a contemporary issue for us. They were saying that their studies of rumor had found that a lot of people who felt that their perspectives and their opinions were widely held, it was because they were putting them out into a relatively small social network and having them fed right back to them. And they were perceiving that feedback as coming from external sources when really they were the ones who had put it out there in the world in the first place. And we are seeing that, that obviously it's been happening since at least the 1970s, certainly (laughs) longer than that, played back at us now at this just immensely exponentially bigger rate. And I think that's what's frightening is suddenly we see how many different perspectives there are. They're all in front of us. They're all tweeting at us all the time. And that's stressful. Hmm. Looks like we have a a call coming in. We'll go to our caller. Uh, Steve from Beaver Dam uh, has uh, called us. Uh, Steve, uh, glad you called. Go ahead with your question or comment. Uh, I think we have to get the call ready here. Okay. Uh, Steve, are you there? Yes, sir. I'm sorry to have to lob in this 
this comment at the end of the show, I meant to email it to you, but my email's not working. Oh, and, okay. uh, if you'll indulge me, it's, it's about a 30-second it's about observation about FOMO and getting older. Okay. So here it is. Um, your conversation this morning is making me feel good that I am older. I'm a ba- I am a baby boomer, thus in my mid-60s, no longer suffering much from FOMO. I also feel a little need at this age to impress my Facebook friends with how fabulous my life is. It ain't fabulous, but it's good. And so my usual expressions on Facebook fall into these categories. One, exhortations to do something. Write a congressman about a certain issue or take note of something interesting in the world. The solar eclipse is a good example of the latter. Two, celebration, and perhaps a little bragging, about a minor accomplishment like baking a pie or setting a mean table. And three, travel photos. Very often these are skiing sojourns, and I do like to share the splendid beauty of wherever I am, but it ain't fabulous by any means. Seems there are some advantages in getting older. Very good, Steve. Thank you. Thank you, Pre- Appreciate that. That's uh, Steve in Beaverdam, uh, Arizona. Let me go first to David Maxfield, uh, your response to that. I guess there, you know, there's generational differences in how we use uh, social media. Steve is not prone, he says, to FOMO. Yeah, well, he sounds like someone who's very comfortable in his own skin. Mm-hmm. And I think that is one of the advantages of, of having a, a strong sense of personal uh, sense of who you are. Now, one of the challenges in social media is sometimes it can blur the line between uh, who you are and who other people, um, whether, whether self-validation is enough or whether you need the validation of your online community to feel comfortable. Um, and and I, would, I would hope that each of us has a strong enough sense of self and self-awareness uh, to, to avoid that problem, but I know that some... Some have issues with that. Mm-hmm. We just have about a, a minute and a half left, so uh, 30 seconds. I'll start with Lynn McNeil. Uh, your couple pieces of advice for us. One piece of advice that I regularly give my students, and it's, it's maybe an imperfect comparison, but it has worked for us for several semesters now, is a thing that I call the magazine test, where when we ask these questions of, is this a rude or dangerous or inappropriate time to be on social media, I have them ask themselves, would it be weird or inappropriate or rude or dangerous to be flipping through a magazine right now? Because somehow our our phone, that device, has a different status. And so, you know, we talk about you're at a dinner table out to eat with all of your friends and someone's telling a story. If you just reached into your bag and pulled out a magazine and started flipping through it, that would just be the height of rudeness. You would never do that. Don't reach for your phone. If you were driving a car, You would not pull out a magazine and start reading it while speeding down the highway. Don't pull out your car. But if you were with a friend at a cafe and she said, hey, when's that, you know, movie that we're going to go see showing this afternoon? And you pulled out a newspaper to look up movie times, totally pro-social use of that appropriate time to pull out your phone. Mm -hmm. So it's a little shortcut that sort of helps highlight the absurdity of things where we're not so certain what's absurd anymore Mm -hmm. right now. David Maxwell, 30 seconds here, uh, one or two pieces of advice for people. So I'll, first I'll echo Lynn's and say, yeah, what would, a, what would a reasonable third party think of you if they saw you doing what you're doing right now? Would they think that was reasonable or not? But let me move to the second one, which is we call it snap, look, and listen. So go ahead, take the picture, do it, um, but then stop and allow yourself to be absorbed in, in the actual experience itself. So, so get your, your like out of the way and then live your life. Hmm. 
Very good. Good advice. You can find more at the website, vitalsmarts.com. Vital Smarts uh, uh, commissioned this uh, study, a very interesting study on, uh, on social media use. Uh, and David Maxfield is with Vital Smarts. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Lynn McNeil, Assistant Professor of English at Utah State University. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Uh, tomorrow, hope you'll join me. We'll talk about the eclipse that's uh, coming up August 21st, of course, and uh, quite close to us will be the zone of totality. So uh, it's estimated that some, I don't know, 500,000 people be migrating uh, north from here. Uh, see that eclipse. We'll be talking with uh, public radio broadcaster and uh, avid umbrophile David Barron, who's written an interesting history American eclipse. We'll talk about uh, all the ins and outs of the eclipse tomorrow. Hope you join us then. Thanks for listening today.